0: Hey, hey, Gene from Dumbasses is Talking Politics, and today we're going to actually talk about Socrates, Plato, and the Republic. Uh, I promised I was going to do this probably about a month and a half ago, but it's pretty complicated stuff, so I do a lot of research on this, and I've done a lot of research on book one. I am doing a ton of research on book two, so don't expect this to be an every Sunday kind of thing. It's probably going to be every, oh, I don't know, every couple of weeks, because I I do want to take my time. I want to understand what's going on in these books. And basically, this is more of an exercise for me than it is a podcast, because I think I really want to understand this stuff. I really want to understand where they're going from, where uh, Plato was coming from. And don't forget, I'm going, a lot of the time, I'm going to talk about Plato himself. I'm not going to really talk about uh, Socrates so much, except the story is about Socrates. Uh, Because Plato's opinions are what is the written word. It isn't Socrates necessarily. So we're going to talk more about Plato than Socrates. So let's talk about the first book. And when we talk about books, when we talk about, because I think there are about 12, 13 books in the Republic, uh, we're talking about chapters. (laughs) They're actually chapters. The average chapter length is between 10 and 20 pages. So it's not so bad. The problem, again, with uh, uh, Plato is that is punctuation. Don't forget, this was written about 2,400 years ago. So... They don't have a lot of punctuation like quotation marks, some commas are kind of iffy. So it can be very difficult to read. When I do read these, I, I do three things. One, I read an external source. In my case, it's SparkNotes. I do read Spark Notes. Find out what the chapter is basically about. Then I read the chapter. Um I again, I'm not going to talk a lot about names. There are a few names. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the names, uh, but I I don't think, the reason I don't like to talk about the names again is in book one, Socrates is just outside of Athens, a small town outside of Athens. Oh, by the way, I shaved. What? I don't even cut myself? I look so much better on HD being shaved than I do um, not being shaved. I need to lose a little bit of weight because the 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 actual I look like I might be getting a little fat here. I got I got to lose some weight. So anyway, so Socrates is with his companion. Um it understand something Socrates was a bisexual. So when they say companion, we're not sure what that actually means. Some people say it's his cousin, some people say it's his uh, brother. No one really knows what it is. This was something that was brought up in the notes, so I, I, I do feel the need to mention it. Uh, Socrates was out there. So I, I, when I say companion, take it for what it is. It, it probably was just his friend. I, no one really knows, so it, it really doesn't matter. Um, but the consensus is that a lot that uh, the person that Socrates with w- was with is actually a family member. It's not necessarily a boyfriend or whatever. Um, and the only reason I bring this up is I was talking with someone about uh, uh, about Plato and Socrates, and that was something everyone kept making a big deal out of. So anyway, he was he was outside. He was outside of of Athens. Um, not too far, I mean walking distance from Athens to the point where they were going to be at this town and leave. They were there for a religious festival, him and his partner were there for a religious festival. And um, they were stopped by one of Socrates' uh, uh, sons of one of Socrates' friends and they said they basically begged him, "Hey, would you like to go see your friend?" and he's just basically a really old man and Socrates wasn't exactly young at this point, so chances are this was an old man. And Socrates decides, you know, they they the the sons of the the sons of Socrates' friend basically say, "Hey, we're just going to grab you anyway." It wasn't really a threat, it was more playful than anything else. But Socrates says, yeah, so let's go. Uh, His friend's name, by the way, was Cephalus, and that's going to be the... There's only one other name in here that you're going to have to know about, and that guy, I guarantee you, I'm going to butcher his name, but Cephalus is basically an old man. So when Socrates sees Cephalus, they actually get together. One of the things Cephalus one of the things the two start talking about is about justice. Now, right off the bat, I've already told you in the first podcast episode that justice is what this whole thing is about. The, and, and that's pretty much what the entire book is going to be about. In this, in this chapter, Plato makes it a point to have several different people tell him, tell Socrates what justice is. And there is a reason for this. For example, the sons who grabbed Socrates, it wasn't an accident they were there. Just like Cephalus, wasn't an accident he's there. Cephalus Plato tries to make it so that you get a a definition of justice from all the different areas of society of the time. Uh, You get a definition of justice from the rich, you get a definition of justice from the poor, you get a definition of justice from the elders, you get a definition of justice from the young. You get different philosophies here. There there are two types philosophies. I'm going to have to look it up somewhere, but I I can't find it right now. There's the Sophic philosophy, which is very different, and actually they kind of... They are the Antifa of ancient Greek philosophy. the uh, The Sophic philosophy. And then I believe it's called the Mosaic philosophy. I'm going to have to look it up. Um... I, I don't know what it's called offhand, but that's the opposite. It's kind of like there's the left-wing, um, there is the left-wing secular portion of Greece, phlo- Greek philosophy, and then there is the more conservative portion of Greek philosophy. And what Plato does, which is actually pretty, pretty cool, Plato gives the definition of justice from three different areas. He gives the different definition of justice from the different generations and he also gives the definition of justice from the different philosophical viewpoints. So that's that's actually kind of cool. So Cephalus is an old guy, okay? And basically what he believes justice is, what he defines justice is. He says, basically, justice is um, you follow your legal obligations, you pay your debts, and you're honest. That's it. That's justice. Uh, So if you owe a man money, it is just to pay the money back, to give the money back. If you borrowed, let's say, a lawnmower from somebody, it's just to return the lawnmower. That's it nothing more. doesn't talk about benefits of justice or anything like that. For example, what's the benefit of being just? Think about that for a second, because that's going to be very important. Now, I I do want to point out something. I do want to point out something that this is, you can tell this is a 2,400-year-old story. And the reason you can see this is because They really don't have clear definitions of things that we really take for granted. Like Today, I think when you you hear social justice, um, economic justice, I, I think we're losing what justice actually is. But the reality is we do have, as a people, we do have an actual definition and we have an understanding of justice. We also have an understanding that justice is good. They didn't back then, twenty four hundred years ago, and we're we're talking five to four to five hundred B.C. This was a long time ago, okay. Well, so that's basically what Cephalus, his friend, his old friend, says: is that justice is you pay your you pay your debts, you pay your taxes, you return what you borrowed. That's justice. That's it. Now, Cephalus is a really old guy. He's supposedly a little bit older than uh, Socrates is. And he ends it at that and walks away. He doesn't want to have an argument. He doesn't want to have a discussion. He knows what it is and that's it. And he walks away. Never accepting talk from Socrates. And this could be an example of, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It could be something as simple as that. I don't know if that's what was meant or if um, Plato was trying to point out that this guy wasn't going to change his opinion at his old age. And we're talking he was old. He was really old. Well, Socrates actually destroys this argument right off the bat. He starts talking about it. He starts talking about it with with the boys, the sons and his partner, whatever that guy is. And he says, you know, no, it's not justice just to return what you're given or to pay money. For example, what if you owed a debt to someone who was going to waste the debt? Would Is it justice or is it right? And I think this is kind of where justice has a real iffy definition back then. Is it justice to actually give that money's that money back to that individual when well, you know that person's just gonna waste it? Likewise, and he takes a more serious tone. Is it let's just say you borrowed a weapon from a man who became mad? Is it right to give the weapon back? That's a big question. That's actually a big question. Uh, You see a little flashing, it's because the TV's on. I do have to have things on while I'm doing this because I I like the flashing. I do the same thing when I read, I do the same thing when I study. So that's a great question. So here's, here's the thing. I borrow a shotgun from my friend. I borrow a shotgun from my friend. My friend in the meantime breaks up with his girlfriend and they were together for a very long time. Would it be, he I talked to him he seemed kind of depressed. I finished my hunting trip with his shotgun. Would it be prudent? Would it be wise? Would it be right? Would it be justice? To actually um, give him his shotgun back. We don't know what's gonna happen, right? We don't we have no idea what's gonna happen, what he's gonna do, what he's capable of. That's Socrates' first point. That blows Cephalus' argument about justice right out of the water. Done story. The second argument comes from uh, Socrates, Cephalus' son, which is Socrates' friend's son. And he basically says that justice is bringing help to your friends and bringing uh, harm to your enemies. This was, this is an important distinction between father and son, because it's a distinction I don't know if he meant to do it this way, but it brings a distinction between the generations. Now, the father, wealthy, happy, content in his life, he didn't need anything. That included, he didn't need sex, he didn't need anything. He had everything he wanted, He, he lived his life the way he wanted to live his life. And basically, he thinks that the best thing, that what justice is in the older generation, is just you paid your debts. I lived my life correctly. I was honest. I paid my debts. I returned my loans. I did everything I had to do. Now you can see with the generation after, the younger generation, it's a tad bit more aggressive. You need to go help your friends, and you need to go defeat your enemies or punish your enemies. So you can see the difference. Cephalus in this case actually had already been established and he doesn't see justice in quid uh, quid pro quos like that. He doesn't see justice in, uh, I, I hate that term, but he doesn't see justice as something that is extreme. That is, he sees it as almost looking back on it and this is the right thing to do. And that's what you should do. Whereas Cephalus's son really doesn't have a place in the world yet. He's so young. He's trying to establish himself. He is trying to uh, set the different areas of his life. Here's our friends. Here's our uh, enemies. And our friends, we always help. And our enemies, we always banish. We always harm. And that's where Socrates destroys the argument. Here's the thing. The United States was friends for Iran for thirty years. Iran became an enemy. Who's to say that Iran's not gonna become an ally again? Saudi Arabia is another example. They're our friend, they were our friend, they're our ally now, but they could be our enemy in the past. Osama bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia. And that was his argument. How do you know who is good and who is bad? How do you know that your friends are good at heart and that your enemies are evil? How do you know that your enemies are not going to become good how do you, do you know your friends are not going to become bad? So the argument that justice is you help your friends and you hurt your enemies is a bad argument because enemies and friends, that's subjective and it changes. It, does, it It's never going to say the same. Long time ago, long, long, long time ago, there was a girl I absolutely couldn't stand. Hated her. I worked with her. I was maybe... 17 at the time. And I hated her. I couldn't stand her. I I did everything I could to make her, her life miserable. And then we started talking. And then suddenly I dated her for a year. See the problem? And that's what Socrates points out. You can't go to extremes like this. Because it just doesn't work. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know who your enemies are your friends and enemies can swap positions quickly. So if I'm helping a friend who turned out to be an enemy, does that mean that I'm committing an injustice? Likewise, if I hurt an enemy who turns out that he wasn't a bad guy or they weren't bad people, and I learn that later I'm committing an injustice, that's justice. Great question. The main point that Socrates is trying to bring up is that human beings are fallible. All right, Our opinion about somebody does not is, does not make it right. It is not necessarily the right opinion. So I can be I as a flawed human being, can see someone and that's my best friend, that's a good friend. I trust this guy, he's a good guy. That doesn't make him so. And I may realize that at one point. So does that mean all the help I gave that individual is just or unjust? Or is it just what I did for him? That's where Socrates destroys Cephalus' son's argument. Now things are gonna get more interesting. Enter Thrasmachus. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I have no idea if I did, but I mean, the name is like, I don't know, 400 characters long. But Thrasmachus is a sophist. And what sophist belief is, and it might sound familiar, it's a secular anti-morality philosophy. Sophist beliefs meet believe, sophists believe that morality, concepts of morality, are basically chains put upon a person's free will that prevents them from discovering something greater. Does that sound familiar? This is the same philosophy that progressives have. Justice is irrelevant. And and actually, Thermacus makes fun of justice. Uh, they would rather embrace human reason 100% and forget about all of that morality tripe. That, that's a sophist, and that's what Thermachus is. He states that justice is nothing more than an advantage of the strong. He doesn't believe in moral concepts like justice and doesn't really define it much at all. He actually just is trying to delegitimize it, trying to make it into something that it's not. He actually believes that society places justice upon the citizens to hold people down and that justice is for the ruler. The ruler could say that is just, that is not, uh, that is unjust, and in order to control us, they use that term justice. Now, in the in the story, life actually does get tough for uh, Socrates. Uh, <laughs> Socrates is really not, doesn't want to fight with this guy, but this guy is looking to pick a fight. He's a lot younger. He even threatens Socrates. This is not good. But the first thing Socrates decides to do is, okay, he's going to walk away. He actually says, I, I, I don't want this conversation because he knows it's a conversation. He's not going to win. Thermachus, no, will not Permit Socrates to walk away. So Socrates performs a couple of things. The first thing he does is he forces Thermachus to admit that he is promoting injustice as a virtue, not as not justice. So in other words, injustice is a virtue. He right off the bat he does not assume justice is a virtue when it comes to Tharmacus's argument. But he's saying, Thermicus is saying, injustice is a virtue. He does this by pointing out that the only point, according to him, to life, is to gather as much money and power as possible. That's justice. The person with the most is considered the most virtuous. So if I'm a billionaire, I must be far more virtuous than the than me. Okay, if I'm a billionaire or if someone's a billionaire, that person is more virtuous than someone like me who lives in relative lives in comfort, but poverty. Okay, and I don't live in poverty. I, I'm okay. So don't don't read misread that. If if I was poor, I probably wouldn't be doing this. So the example he uses is one who has a skill that is virtuous, like medicine, art, and mathematics. The artist creates art for art itself and does not try to compete with other artists. For that, he's paid for his art. That's justice. He creates something that people want. People pay him for that. And he creates not comparing himself to other people he creates because it's beautiful in his eyes other people see it in beauty and they pay him money for it so right off the bat is that person in unjust and the answer is no he's not unjust he's just That's what he likes to do. So he basically has just destroyed the argument. It goes the same with the doctor. You go to a doctor, you've got an illness. Do you go to the doctor and the doctor compares what other doctors say, which actually is called consultation? They do do that. But does the doctor worry about someone else's um, opinion? Or does he treat the patient? In other words, the doctor is actually worried about the patient, not worried about anything else. There's nothing outside of it. Is that unjust? Because the doctor is more concerned with other individuals. Is the artist unjust because they create art for the sake of art? That's the question he asks. Thermachus does not have an answer. The second point of Socrates is that justice encompasses everything, including the unjust. Thieves. You've heard that statement, honor among thieves? Probably came from, from Plato in the Republic. Honor among thieves think about that. Can thieves be unjust between each other? So Oceans 11, great movie. I love the movie. It was kind of a I thought it was a good movie. A lot of people didn't like it. But Ocean 11 shows how there were 11 guys that decided to rob a casino. And these guys had to work together. They each had their own roles to rob this casino. They all, some did more than others. Some put their lives at risk, unlike others. At the end, they ended up stealing the billion dollars or whatever it was, and they split it amongst themselves. Is there honor among thieves? Is there justice among thieves? Yes, because the reality is if the thief was unjust in that case, one thief would take all of the money, and the other thieves would presumably have to be killed or whatever. That thief eventually is gonna to want to join someone else and is not going to. So if you have multiple thieves, there's gotta be some justice. So the the question about so right off the bat, Thermachus is completely thrown off. He has to admit that Socrates is correct in every line of argument. And by the way, this line of questioning that that Socrates does is the longest in the chapter. And so far from what I've seen, it's the longest in the book. Thermocases has to give up. He's ticked off. He decides to take off. And it just shows that monetary gain. Uh, material gain is not justice. The person that has the most material is not justice. And that justice is not something that we can ignore in any way. We need to acknowledge it, and it needs to be, even with the evil, it needs to be, there needs to be some justice. That's the chapter. That's the book. It's that simple nothing more. So we have three different opinions on justice. Justice is returning what's owed to you, returning what you owe, paying off your debts, paying off your debts, uh, doing the right thing. That is the definition from someone who is older, someone from the older generation who is already established, already has money, and so forth. When we go to the younger generation, you're looking at a person who believes that justice is helping friends, hurting enemies. This is coming from a person who's established nothing. Socrates has destroyed these arguments. And I told you these arguments come from a, a certain type of philosophy in Greece at the time, and it's called the Hez, Hezonic philosophy. The Hezonic philosophy believes that morality is important when it comes to reason, when dealing with reason. So the Hezonic, the Hez, Hezonic philosophy of Greece did believe this. They believed that there had to be justice. And no matter how misplaced the justice was. The justice was necessary. Okay. Then we talk about Thermacus, and he was the one guy, very difficult name to pronounce. I actually downloaded a book from, (laughs) downloaded a book on Google, uh, on um, uh, Amazon to to listen to the names. Uh, So Thermacus, that's how you pronounce it. Thermacus was a sophist, And sophists are secular. They don't believe in morality. They believe in human agency. No matter how twisted. A sophist sees a human being as an animal. That the animal does what the animal does. And that's about it. And that reason, which separates us from the animals, should rule. Even if the reason is immoral. That's sophist's theory. And Sophists dismissed justice altogether. Thermachus did not embrace justice as something he saw it as chains. He saw it as something that was holding people back. And it was something that the rich used against the regular people. He did not see any value of justice. So what was what was the what did we learn from this chapter what did i learn from this book okay um first off there was never a definition of justice plato never defined justice all that happened was that uh Socrates argued against the other definitions of justice. So he never really defined justice. Um, What I did find are two things. Two things I really did find about I, I, I thought were really interesting. One, the Socratic Argument. This is something we see all the time on shows like Law and Order and all all sorts of legal shows. You see the Socratic argument. And what the Socratic argument is, is take a person's opinion and use it against that person. So this is something I use all the time, especially when it comes to abortion. So you ask someone who is pro abortion, they sit back and say, "Well, I'm I'm pro, I'm I'm pro li- I'm pro choice." I hate the term. You're pro-abortion, they're pro abortion, but the approach. You're pro abortion. I'm pro. I'm anti-abortion. I, it's what it is. I'm not pro-life. I'm anti-abortion. Okay, there are people I think should be killed. That's why I hate the the term pro-life. I'm pro. I'm anti-abortion. We don't use. The uh, left does not use pro-abortion as their tagline because um, abortion is a bad thing, and they already know that, and you're for a bad thing, which is what pro means. The right doesn't use anti-abortion because anti is a negative for a negative thing. They don't see that negative and negative equals a positive, but whatever. I'm anti-abortionist. I had this discussion and I I was confirmed that, yeah, that's what you should be calling yourself and that's pro-abortionists should be calling themselves pro-abortion. But here's the thing, not the point. I'm just bringing this up only because I talked about this earlier. How do you argue with an abortionist? You argue with an abortionist to make them agree with you on certain things. So how do you do that? Well, Let's just say uh, you're dealing with a pro-abortionist and the first thing they'll always bring up is the rape, the mother could die scenario, uh, incest scenarios. They always bring that up. It makes up less than 2%. brings up less than 1% of the total abortions. That's fine. So I'll, I'll sit there and I'll tell them, okay, great. You're wrong, but great. I will give you those abortions. A woman who's going to die if she has a baby, a woman who is raped is going to have a baby, and a woman who is got pregnant via an incest is going to have a baby. I'll give you that. I'll give you the 0.7% of abortions that that really is. We make those completely legal. What about the other 99.3%? Let's outload. So you agreed to outload those. The person will answer, well, no, I don't believe that. Okay. So in other words, the worst case scenario you just made an argument for is not what you're arguing for. You're arguing for total abortions. Yes. Okay. So why'd you make the argument? It's the same thing with sentience. This is something that Pro-abortionists make an argument all the time. Well, a baby's not sentient, so that baby should not, is does not have a legal right to live. Okay, what about someone in a coma? They're not sentient. Is a person in a coma not sentient? Well, yes, they're not, no, they're not sentient. Well, then, mm, should we be able to kill them? You'll get those weirdos that, those euthanasia, nuts jobs that sit there and say, yeah, we should kill them. But most people will say, well, no. Well, why not? They're not sentient. What about people who are brain dead? Should we kill them? Or should that be up to someone who has sentience to make that decision? Oh, that's a bad argument. I I don't use that argument. Uh, Bad argument. Erase that. I'm not going to delete it. You're just going to have to listen to it. But sentience is not a great argument either. How about this? You believe that a baby at 36 weeks should be able to be aborted. What is the sentience level of a 36-week-old uh, fetus versus a two-day-old baby? What is the difference between a 32-week uh, um, fetus versus a two-day-old two baby? What is the difference between a twenty-eight week fetus versus a two-day-old baby? Newsflash: None. There's no difference. That's how you argue. That's how you argue abortion, because there is no difference. And as much as these people fight, now I used abortion as an example. Obviously, I'm anti-abortion. Obviously, pro-life, anti-abortion. Whatever you want to talk about, but the reality is. That is the Socratic way of arguing, is to get these people to sit back and actually agree with your position. And that's what Socrates does in this entire first book. The entire first chapter of the Republic does not actually give us much. It really doesn't. But it teaches us the extremes in Greek society. It shows us the difference between the generations and it shows us the difference between the philosophies. And what's amazing about it is because we all have a, today, 2,400 years later, we have a belief on what philosophy is, what justice is. We got to remember, 2,400 years ago, they really didn't have that. It's pretty awesome. Um. Uh, we've had a awesome news week. This is going to be published on Sunday. I'm going to publish another one on Sunday uh, based on the great week that Trump had last week. Trump had a fantastic week, but I didn't want to publish yesterday, so I didn't bother. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, and YouTube. You can view this vlog on YouTube. Uh, you can also read, this isn't, these are not show notes this time. I actually wrote an essay on book one of Plato's Republic. You can read it at dumbassestalkingpolitics.com. Please follow me on Twitter at RunninFool, R-U-N-N-I-N-F-E-W-L. This is Gene, and you've listened to Dumbasses Talkin' Politics.